Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. We bow our hearts, we bow our lives before you. We surrender our ears to you, Father, to hear what your spirit would speak to us in this moment. And Father, if there's anything, anything at all in our lives that would hinder us from hearing you clearly tonight, we quickly repent of that and we say, speak, Lord God, your servant listens. And Father, it's not just enough for us to be hearers of your word tonight. We must be doers of it. So we ask you to do the work in our lives that's necessary for us to become men and women of your word and of your spirit, not just hearing, but doing the truth of who you are. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. And that's not just a casual invitation, that's a desperate cry. Come, Spirit of the living God, and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Tonight, Father, we are asking for transformation and revolution in the way that we think and the way that we live our lives. Tonight, Father, we're asking for holy fire to ignite the altars of our heart that we might leave this place ablaze with the things of your kingdom and that we might be covered with the beauty of your holiness. For it's in the excellent name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, we're in the book of Esther, and tonight we're going to read chapter 2, verses 2 through 17. Specifically, for those of you who were not able to be with us last Wednesday night, we're specifically looking at the aspect of the hidden God in the book of Esther. Esther is one of two books in the Old Testament that does not mention the name of God, doesn't even have a hint of the name of God in the entire book. For many years, Christians wanted to reject this book. For many years, we've not studied it and we've not looked at it seriously. But when you consider the fact that the name Esther, when broken down to its etymological root, means hidden, and that the rabbis have taught for centuries that God is hidden in this book, it behooves us to become students of this book to see where God might be and to see what he might be revealing about himself to us. Last week, we looked at God hidden in law. We saw from last week that 21 times throughout the Old Testament, a word doth is used for law in contrast to Torah. Torah is the traditional Hebrew word for law, and it specifically refers to the law of God, and in particular, the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses in the book of Exodus and then relayed to the people of Israel. But when it comes to the laws of man, they're referred to as doth. And 21 times in the Old Testament, this term is used, and 20 of those 21 times is found in the book of Esther. And last week, if you'll remember, we discovered that the laws of man are as temporary as the culture that produces them. We found that the laws of man, when left alone, will run contrary to the laws of God. But the laws of God being eternal and empowered by the very lawgiver himself, the law of God will always have the final word and the final victory over the laws of man. I also mentioned to you that I think that we are quickly coming to a time in our culture where we are going to have to make a decision to be obedient to the laws of God or the laws of man. 
And now is the time for us to make up our minds, to decide, to choose with every fiber and every cell of our being which direction we're going to go in. Will we be obedient to the laws and the ways of God or will we bend and bow to the laws of man? And I hope after last week, you've made a concrete decision in your heart and in your life that you're going to follow Jesus. Even if no one goes with you, even if the world hates you, even if the world decides that you have lost your mind and that you are completely out of control, that you are going to follow Jesus. Now, that brings us to chapter 2. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins into the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young women or let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to the king Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with more oils of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazhagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abahel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus and to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. What a story. I want us to pull back the veil for just a moment and look at some of the implications of what's really going on in here. 
It appears that the young women that were selected for this, for this event were not given a choice. People who present this as a beauty pageant don't get behind the historical context of this passage. These young women were selected whether they wanted to be selected or not. They were taken, probably not against their will because to show any resistance would have meant their immediate death, but she was not really given a choice and she was gathered into a group. I know that some of you look at your children and maybe even your grandchildren and you feel like that they have been gathered up and caught into a culture and you had no ability to stop it. You feel sometimes maybe as if in your, your, you yourself, you've gotten caught up into a wave or into a current of culture and you've had very little power to overcome it, very little power to resist it or even to identify it. Let me tell you this, Jesus did not call us out of culture. He actually called us out of culture to go back into culture to be different from culture. This is where we belong in this moment, in this hour, and in this time. Righteousness shines ever so bright in the middle of unrighteousness. Holiness is ever so beautiful in the presence of unholiness. Church, this is our hour this is our moment. This is our opportunity to make a difference, to look different, to speak different, to act different, to live our lives in such a way that the world would turn around and go, what is up with him? Everyone else is doing this, but she is not. Everyone else is walking in this way, but this person's not doing that. They are not touched by the taunts of the people around them. They are not bullied. And by the way, if you think bullying stops in school, you are sadly mistaken. There is just as much bullying going on in the marketplace, in the world, in the legal system, in the culture that surrounds us as there has ever been anywhere. But this young woman is gathered, maybe probably not even at her own desire, but she's gathered in with a group. And then we have our introduction to Mordecai. He is a relative of Saul. You remember King Saul? Saul was the leader that was chosen by the people prior to David. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here with Saul, but Saul made some huge errors. He had a brief opportunity, and during that opportunity, he made some huge errors in his relationship with the Lord, and there were some unresolved issues and insecurities in his life that negated him from being king over Israel. And we're going to see, in many ways, Mordecai, or Mordecai is the opposite of Saul. Saul sought to please people. Mordecai sought to do what was right before the Lord. Saul functioned out of his own security and his need to be first and at the top of the stack. But Mordecai was more than willing to pray for and to promote other people beyond himself. So we're going to see a little bit of a difference here. And I'll do more with Mordecai later on, uh, probably next week. Mordecai was a captive from Judah. That meant when the Babylonians came into the southern kingdom of Judah and took Judah captive, Mordecai's family was a part of those that were taken captive. We also see that he's raising his niece, and he's not just raising her out of some sense of obligation. Here comes another aspect of this man's character. He's raising her as though she were his own daughter. That means, literally, he made no difference between her and his own biological children. He loved her as though she were his daughter, and that tells us a lot about this man, Mordecai. We see that Esther was taken 
and that she was placed under the care of a eunuch, a eunuch named Haggai. Haggai just simply means big eunuch or chief eunuch. That means he is, the, he is the man that epitomizes the role of the eunuch. He's going to take care of her. That is his job. Not to abuse her, not to violate, not to manipulate her. It is his job to take care of her and to seek, his, to seek her best interest even over and above his own. Then the point I want us to come to first tonight, the first place that God is hidden, we see that Esther found Hesek translated favor in your Bible with Haggai and basically with everyone around her. There are two Hebrew words that are used for favor. One is Hesek. It's a covenant word. It's also translated loving kindness or covenant love. It's the word that's used to express the love that God has toward his people that he's in covenant with. It's a word that means tender mercies. It's the love that a parent would have for a child. It's covenant love, a love that cannot be tainted, a love that cannot be diminished, a love that cannot be broken. It's a love that goes beyond self and loves with a love like God, Hesek. The other word is hen, and hen just means favor. You would think in this context that that word hen would be used since the name of God is absent. But I think God is hidden here in this word because even in the midst of a vile, even in the midst of a reprobate culture and society, this young woman finds favor, and her favor comes from the Lord. Her favor doesn't come from her beauty. I think we make so many mistakes by thinking, oh, that person's beautiful, and they'll go far because of their beauty. Beauty will not get you that far without the Lord's favor. And not only that, you do not want to go where your beauty can take you without the favor of God. That young man will go far. He has great athletic ability. He'll be given great favor because of his athletic ability. Honey, you don't want that kind of favor. You want the favor that the Lord gives because when the Lord gives favor, he doesn't take it away. When the Lord gives favor, it's his favor. And it's favor that abides. And it's favor that continues. I want you to know tonight, go home, look in the mirror, look at yourself and go, self Because you belong to Jesus, you have the favor of the Lord. Because you have the favor of the Lord, he will provide for you that which you have need of. Because you have the favor of the Lord, he will close the doors that do not need to be opened. And he will open the doors that do need to be opened. Because you have the favor of the Lord, he will prevent you from going into places that you ought not be. There have been times when I was 19 years old, I had just accepted Jesus, I had just gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit. I loved photography, and I took pictures of everything. And I thought, wouldn't it be the greatest job in the whole world to be a fashion photographer in New York City because I love photography and I love clothes. And wouldn't it just be awesome to put the two of those together? And at 19 years old, my head was swimming with the possibilities of that. I won a major Southeastern photography contest, and there were judges that were coming from some of the major magazines in New York City that judged the photography contest, and I won. I was even on television. They were showing off my pictures and stuff. They were courting me to be an apprentice to some of the top photographers in New York, and that dream would come true. And I was just dancing with excitement. But as quickly as that opportunity presented itself, that company went bankrupt, they had to close their doors, and I never heard from them again. Because God had something bigger for me than taking pictures of people in clothes. Or otherwise. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sometimes it is the favor of the Lord that will close an immediate door that you think you really want. Sometimes it's the Lord that closes off a relationship that you think is right on. Sometimes it's the Lord that will close off a job opening that's really not yours because it's the favor of the Lord that puts you in the place where you need to be. And tonight, it is because of the favor of the Lord that we are all in this place and that we all get to be reminded that it's because of his favor, his hesek. So we find that Esther is in this place because of the favor of the Lord. It also reminds us of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph had a rough go of it. Any, any way you look at it, Joseph had a rough go of it. He has this dream, and he tells his parents and his brothers about this dream, and immediately it gets him into trouble. I think the fact that Joseph even told them about this dream tells us a little bit about some of the arrogance that may have been percolating in Joseph's heart and mind at that time. So Joseph gets sold to Midianites as a slave by his brothers. It's one thing to be betrayed by an enemy. It is something wholly different to be betrayed by a brother or to be betrayed by someone that you do not expect betrayal from. The very ones that you would expect to betray you or the very, or that you expect to protect you are the very ones that are sending you off with the Midianites as a slave. So he gets into Potiphar's house. But you know, God really has his hand on this young man's life and he really does have the favor of the Lord. Even when his brothers betrayed him, it did not stop the favor of the Lord. See, we want to say favor is good things, but sometimes favor is painful. So here we have Joseph. He's in Potiphar's house and quickly gains the favor of Potiphar and the favor of everyone around him, even the favor of Potiphar's wife in not so Christ-like of a way. So Joseph in this difficult situation, I mean, think about it. Put yourself in his situation. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been isolated. He's now among the Midianites and he has favor in Potiphar's household. He might even be thinking, well, I have favor because I'm just all that in a bag of chips. I mean, he might be thinking, I have favor because I'm something special. I mean, he could honestly, those thoughts could be churning through his brain. So when Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, he could also think, well, I might as well. Because being righteous has gotten me sold into slavery and betrayed by my family. Do you know people who think like that? Maybe you look at them in the mirror from time to time. But Joseph determined to keep his integrity and he said, I will not do this thing. And because he did what was right and the favor of the Lord was upon him, his next stop is prison. <laughs> and in prison, I think, the Bible remains silent, but I think while in prison, every dream, every aspiration, every element of arrogance and pride died a slow, painful death. At one point, one of the king's servants gets thrown into prison with Joseph. And Joseph says to him, he has a dream and Joseph interprets it and he says, you're going to be restored back to your position. When you get to your position, remember my name to the Pharaoh. 
Remember my name to the king. So maybe, just maybe I can get out of here. Look at what he's doing. He's under the favor of God, but he's beginning to appeal to the favor of man. It's easy to do. Which of us has not tried, attempted, or maybe even done that from some time in our lives where we have attempted to use the favor of man to get us where we want to be or to get us out of a situation that God has us in? And just like Joseph, it doesn't work. And he has to wait and sweat and die some more in that ridiculous prison until one day God says, it's time now. And he brings him out of prison and in next to no time, he is in second command of all of Egypt. But I tell you, had he not spent that time in the prison, he would not be qualified to do what God was raising him up to do. The favor of the Lord is not always a pleasant event. The favor of the Lord can mean that you have to go through some things that other people don't go through. The favor of the Lord means that there's a level of righteousness that's required out of your life that other people just seem to be oblivious to. The favor of the Lord, the hesek, the loving kindness, the covenant love, you are his. And because you are his, he will not let go because you yell uncle. Because you are his. He will not back off because you're uncomfortable. Because you'll hear me say this a hundred times. God is more concerned about your holiness than he is your comfort. He's a lot more concerned about your character than he is your happiness. And God will sacrifice both comfort and happiness to bring forth a holy, righteous child. If you want to know what happens when someone indulges a child, look at our culture with its spirit of entitlement, who has no concept of actions and consequences, who has no concept of, oh, you mean I have to work for that? Why shouldn't I have at 21 what my parents didn't get until they were 60? I have a right. That attitude of entitlement, and it's destroying not just our culture, it's destroying the church. You want to hear what it sounds like in the church? Church isn't relevant for me. So because church isn't relevant for, for me, I don't need to go. And the worship. I don't like the worship there. I want something that's a little more upbeat, something that's a little more appealing to me. Honey, let me tell you right now, it doesn't matter whether church is relevant for you or not. Church is not for you. It's for him. Worship's not for you. It's for him. You make it relevant. You make it profitable with your attitude and your response. Don't you dare say the church is not relevant. Because if you do, you're not being honest. Because it's not about the relevance of church for you. It's about you being obedient to him and doing what he has asked of you. The more church bends and bows to the dictates of culture, the farther we move ourselves from God. The more we order worship in such a way so as to appeal to the masses, the less it's worship. Because church has never been about pleasing you, baby. And worship's never been about making you happy. It's about him and what honors him and what pleases him and what glorifies and magnifies the name of Jesus. The favor of the Lord. And Esther knew the favor of the Lord. Joseph knew the favor of the Lord, but that favor was going to cost them. It would put them in positions, but before they could get to those positions, they were going to have to go through a process because favor 
always lead you to a process. Don't you love processes? <laughs> you guys are going to love me before tonight's over. <laughs> the favor that was shown to Esther was worked out in what she was given. She was given three things. She was given cosmetics, food, and assistance, and all of that was wrapped up in advancement. The cosmetics that she was given, if you break it down etymologically, it's like an exfoliant salt scrub. And most of the ladies in here know what that is. It's a scrub that you put on your body, especially your elbows and your heels and your knees, those drier parts of your body, and you scrub it in. And it's supposed to eliminate the dead skin so that new skin, much softer, can come in its place. It is not pleasant. When it says cosmetics, we're thinking things like Maybelline and CoverGirl and Revlon and stuff like that. That's not what they're talking about. This is a salt grain coarse scrub that they're going to rub into her skin and it's not going to be comfortable. It's going to hurt and it's going to burn. And they were going to give her her portion of food. That means that she's probably not going to get pot roast, mashed potatoes, and apple pie with ice cream. That means that she's probably going to get things that are lean and green and relatively tasteless. And fruit for dessert if she's fortunate. Because the cosmetics and the food were being provided to her so that it would cleanse her externally and internally so that it would beautify her internally and externally, so that she would have what she needed when she appeared before the king, things that makeup and jewelry and clothing could not give to her. And she was given seven women to help her. Can you imagine one woman with seven women to help her with all these things? Do you know God's probably put seven people in your life to help you along too? They're the people that grate up against you like sandpaper. Some of you, your children, are your helpers. <laughs> Some of you are married to your helper from time to time. Some of you have to work for that person or work with that person. They might live next door to you. They might be the person that sits and the pew next to you. It might be the person that you run into in the grocery store. God puts people around us that we don't necessarily like being around and often want to be around, but they're necessary in our lives because they work the things of God into us and the things of unrighteousness out of us. It's the favor of the Lord. It's the loving kindness of God. Because listen to me, what have I already said? God loves us too much to let go when we yell uncle. He loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. God is after something in our lives. He's after us looking like, acting like, talking like, thinking like his son. And we do not get there comfortable and happy. Okay, you guys are really quiet now. Thank you. <laughs> The assistants applied and rubbed in the cosmetics. They were certain that the food was eaten. We have to be reminded that there are divinely appointed people in our lives who act as abrasive exfoliants for our soul. Joseph had those things with his brothers. He had those things with Potiphar's wife. 
He probably had those things with the men that he was in prison with. But Joseph allowed these things to work their work in his life, and he kept his integrity before the Lord. And finally, when he came face to face with his brothers many years after the event and revealed himself to them, and they were afraid, this is what Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God said, I meant for good. You know that that abrasive exfoliant has had its work when you look back on the painful events of your life and you're able to smile and say, oh yeah, the enemy meant it for evil, but look what the Lord has done. God has used it for the good. Then there's Hannah. You remember Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1? Hannah wanted a son. She wanted a child. And she was unable to produce a child. And Penina, Elkanah's other wife, well, she had a baby every nine months. And it wasn't bad enough that this woman was able to have children abundantly. She'd take those babies and hold them in front of Hannah and go, Nana, Nana, boo, boo. Look what I have that you don't have. Penina's name means to make fruitful. And God was using Penina to provoke Hannah to fruitfulness because she already had the love of her husband. Elkanah even tried to console her and say, Hannah, don't I love you the most? Don't I give you the most? Is not my love better than that of a dozen sons? And Hannah would not be consoled. And she poured her heart out before the Lord. She pushed in and she touched the throne and said, give me a child. And you remember the story. Eli spoke to her and said, you'll come back next year and you'll have a child. And she did. But I wonder if she would have been content to remain fruitless if Penina had not provoked her. Again, another example that God uses difficult people in our lives, less than pleasant people in our lives, and oftentimes he uses them to provoke us to a place of fruitfulness that we have never been before. Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> if Joseph and Hannah weren't enough, there's David. There were things that provoked righteousness in David's life. Saul chasing him with a javelin and David having to go into hiding and David having to come to a place to where he said, it's your favor, O Lord, and it's your face that I seek. So there's Hannah, there's Joseph, there's David, there's Nehemiah. Nehemiah's enemies provoked him saying, if you don't quit building this wall, we're going to kill you. And what did Nehemiah do? It provoked him to work even faster. He held a sword in one hand and a thing in the other hand to lay the um, clay that would allow the stones to stick. He didn't stop working. He just increased it. Anytime the enemy provokes you and tries to prevent you from doing what God has asked you to do, that's an indication to do it more and to do it better. Whenever you begin to walk in the paths of righteousness and everything starts to fall apart on you, that's not an indication that you're on the wrong path. It's the indication that you're on the right one. And you just keep on walking. Because in this world you have tribulation. Think it no strange thing, my brethren, when you fall into diversities and conflicts and all this stuff starts falling apart. That's not unusual. What's unusual is when you have no trouble at all. If you ever come to a place where you can look around and go, have no enemies, there's no one provoking me, there's nothing grating up against me, honey, you're in the wrong place, come talk to me. <laughs> we need to get you in the right place. So we have David, Hannah, Penina, and Nehemiah, and the list could go on. 
God is hidden sometimes in the people who grate against us. God is hidden sometimes in the people who irritate us and the people who provoke us. He's hidden in favor. And sometimes that favor comes hidden in packages that are uncomfortable and unpleasant. Esther, from the word of Mordecai, decided to keep her identity hidden at, the, at his request. This is significant because it tells us that the people of Judah, the Jews, did not have a lot of respect and favor in captivity. They weren't necessarily persecuted directly, but because their laws and the laws that they kept, remember, Haman's going to go to King Ahasuerus and he's going to say, these Jews, they keep laws that are contrary to your laws and they need to be annihilated. They need to be destroyed. They need to be killed, mass genocide. And the king said, somebody's not obeying my laws. Well, let's make a law to get rid of them. And so for that reason, because of the disfavor of the Jews and because their laws were so drastically different from the laws of other nations, decided to keep her identity secret. She kept her identity secret. That doesn't mean she didn't know who she was. That doesn't mean that she didn't continue with integrity and uprightness in the things that she knew to be right and true. Mordecai checked on her daily. He walked past the gate and asked questions, inquired about her daily to see how she is. This is the action of a man who cares and who is invested and who senses that there's a divine purpose for the events that are unfolding. If you want to go into typology, I think that Mordecai is a type of the Holy Spirit or his actions reflect the actions of the Holy Spirit. When you are pulled away from your group, when you're under the favor of God and it hurts and it grates against you, know this, the Holy Spirit of God hovers over you. He never leaves you and he never forsakes you. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered like an artist over a canvas. The Spirit of God hovered like a mother hen over her chickens. He hovered in a maternal, loving sort of way over creation. And he hovers over our lives today to take the chaos, to take those things that are not in order, to take those things that are askew, and to bring them back into a right order in our lives. The Spirit of God hovers over your life to bring something beautiful out of your mess. He hovers over your life to bring order and structure out of your chaos. He hovers over your life to bring direction and steps rightly ordered in the midst of your confusion. That's a promise. And just like Mordecai checks every day on Esther, the Holy Spirit checks every day on you. You may not see him. You may not feel him. You may not even be able to acknowledge it. But even in spite of all those things, it does not change the fact you are not alone. The comforter knows what you're going through. The comforter knows what everyone's doing around you. And he knows what's happening in your life because that's who he is. Then we come to the preparation. Don't you just love that word preparation, process and preparation? I mean, you know as soon as you hear it, something uncomfortable is coming. <laughs> We're told in the second chapter here in Esther 
that she was given her ritual baths, six months in myrrh and six months in cinnamon and other spices. The first time we encounter the word myrrh or the idea of, of, of myrrh is in Exodus chapter 15. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt and now they're trying to get to the place that God has told them to go, to get to the mountain of God. And as they're walking, they've seen the Egyptians drown. God, God has been with them. They've seen all kinds of marvelous, wonderful things. But no matter how wonderful and marvelous everything's been, they're thirsty. And that's a, that's a legitimate need. They're thirsty. They need water. If they do not get water, they're going to die. Their children are going to die. Their, their herds and flocks are going to die. Water is a necessity. But instead of trusting God, they do what they usually did, which was complain. Would it have been better if we died in Egypt? If, I mean, I know God thought, if I just had a dollar for every time they said that. <laughs> it's like kids in the back seat of the car going, are we there yet? And you get down the street from the house, I need to go to the bathroom. I mean, there's always something. A trip that could take two hours ends up taking two days because of all the stuff going on in the back seat. And the children of Israel are no different. And they see water off in a distance. And they're like, oh, water. And they all run to it. And when they get to it, they discover that the water is myrrh. It's bitter. And they begin to complain all over again. And this time it's even worse because the only thing worse than being thirsty is thinking that your thirst is going to be quenched only to find out that there's water and you can't drink it. And God, Moses goes to the father and he says, Father, what am I going to do? God, what do you want me to do? These people are thirsty. They need water. And God tells him, take that tree and throw that tree in the water. We don't know what that tree was. It doesn't matter. This is an act of faith. Moses puts the tree, of, uh, the tree in the water and it heals the waters and turns them sweet and the people are able to drink. And God identifies himself in that place as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. I am the Lord God who heals you. The first thing that God heals is bitterness. If I could tell you from a psychological and medical perspective how many physical illnesses we have that stem from bitterness, you would be shocked. Bitterness is a root that takes up and lodges itself in our lives and it never stays the way it starts. It always grows and it permeates its way from one area of our life into another and eventually it will rise up and own us. And everything that comes out of us will be myrrh. It'll be bitter. But God wants to heal bitterness. For six months, Esther has to soak in a bath of myrrh. Bitter to the taste. Because this myrrh is going to pull out the toxins and the garbage in her life. It's going to do a cleaning and a detoxing of her inner being. I tell you, if you will allow it, when you go through moments of bitterness, God will use it as an opportunity to heal things in you that you didn't even know were there. God will use those moments to pull things out of you that you weren't even aware of. Things Difficult, bitter circumstances and situations, God is hidden in those events to heal you and to make you whole 
and to cleanse you in your mind and in your emotions as well as in your body. How often when God allows us to go through a situation that's difficult for us and God, you just don't love me. You don't care. Where are you when I need you? And we go through all these litanies and you're laughing because you do the same thing that I do when ultimately we go through these things. We go through that time or that season of bitterness and difficulty because God's wanting to deliver us. God is wanting to heal us and cleanse us and pull the toxins and the garbage out of our lives. Again, why? Because he loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. He's more concerned about our holiness than he is our comfort. He's far more concerned about our character than he is our happiness. He wants us to reflect the nature and the character of his son. And a part of our process is that we often have to go through things that we would vote no on if we were given the opportunity. Bitter events do not make or bring anything out of us that we are not already full of. Bitter events do not bring anything out of us that we are not already full of. No one can with a right heart and a truthful spirit say, that event made me this or made me that. No, it didn't. You were that before you ever went into it, and that event just pulled it to surface. Difficult events do not make us anything one way or the other. Bitter events pull to surface what's already inside of us. It is good for us before we marry someone, before we enter into a long-term relationship with someone, business or otherwise, it is good for us to see them through some different seasons in their life. Anybody can be happy in the springtime. Anybody can look good in the spring. Oh, anybody can look pretty good in the fall, too. But what happens when the winter comes? What happens when the business dries up? What happens when there's no money in the bank? What happens when her husband leaves her? What happens when her kids go AWOL over here? What happens? What's their attitude like when life gets difficult? Watch people. Watch yourself. How many of us jump into relationships because we catch somebody in the springtime? And then we commit before winter. And we don't see what's really going on. Bitterness springs up in our hearts and our lives because that seed was already there. What we go through makes us neither good nor bad. It simply exposes what we've always been. Our reactions to the events of life will determine who we become. But do not blame your circumstances or situations for your bitter or mean behavior. How many times have we heard people say, well, I have a right to be angry. You don't know what I've been through. I have a right to carry this chip on my shoulder because you don't know what they did to me. Let me tell you, honey, there's not a person in this room tonight that hasn't been through something. And the way we react to those events in our life determines our attitude. If I look at those events and I say, my God was faithful. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. 
They're praying. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're obeying God. They're not partying with the Babylonians. They're not checking out the Babylonian chicks. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They are praying and they're eating only the food that's permitted for them to eat. They are being right before God in a difficult circumstance and situation. And because these young men have laws different from the laws of men, someone wants to bring them down because they're jealous of them. And they see these young men as intimidators or as possible threats to their position. But these young men are not there to please a king. They're there to please the king. And that's what their focus is on. And so they do not bow down. And they find themselves being bound up with ropes and casting into a, being cast into a fiery furnace. This furnace is so hot that the men who are supposed to put them in there get burned up in the process. But here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in the middle of the furnace, and the king's looking at him, and there's like a fourth person in the furnace, and he says he's likened to the Son of Man. And the three boys come out of the furnace, and the only thing that's gone are their ropes. Think about that. You step into the furnace of affliction, and the only thing that comes off of you is that which has bound you and held you captive. Our God is a great God. Do you begin to see that the things that we go through are opportunities for deliverance and freedom that maybe we've never even comprehended? What happens when a church says, if you follow Jesus, you never have to go through anything and then make it look like something bad if you go through a time of affliction? There's no growth. There's no character. There's no deliverance. There's no release of God's presence and anointing and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because Paul said, this affliction, this light affliction, being beaten, being snake bit, being left for dead, being threatened by my own countrymen, being shipwrecked, all the things that Paul went through, he said, these light afflictions. They are but for a moment, and they work in me a far more eternal weight and glory. Paul understood that the things that he went through allowed more of God's glory to be released in his life. Sometimes I think that we go into the delivery room, and the only thing that we walk out with are our stories about the pain of the labor, and we leave the baby. If I'm going to go through something, I want to come out with something. I want to come out with something that says, look what the Lord did. I don't want to brag about the pain and the cost. I want to brag about what was on the other side. I want to talk about, look what the Lord has done. Look what he's worked out of my life. Look, I'm free today. I'm not following in the paths of my family because God did this in my life. He had to take me through some things to get me there, but he was faithful. He checked on me every day. He hovered over me with his Holy Spirit, and he brought me out on the other side. And the only thing I lost were the ropes that bound me. Praise the Lord. And all of this in the book of Esther. And I have to say this. As Pastor Des has taught us so many years, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. Anybody can come out of a difficult trial smelling like smoke, but it takes the divine work and activity of a good and a great and awesome God to bring us out to where we don't even smell like smoke. And people would never know that we had gone through the things that we went through. Okay, I'm not even through my first page of notes. Do you guys bring dinner? <laughs> Just joking. 
After six months of being in myrrh, the next six months, she's in the spices. She's in, she soaks in the cinnamon. She's rubbed down, anointed, and massaged with the cinnamon because for six months, God worked things out of her, and now he's working fragrance into her. That's our God. He never takes us through anything without beautifying us with the presence of his holiness. If you've gone through something, stop for a moment and let him bring the fragrance of his holiness upon your life and apply it to your life. After she went through a whole year of preparation, according to the custom, she was given whatever she wanted from the harem as she went before the king. If you had this opportunity, what would you take? Would you take the sparkly, glittery dress that you knew would catch his eyes? Would you take the pearls and the diamonds? Would you take the expensive, exotic cosmetics of Egypt and, and doll yourself up like no other? What would you take with you? Esther's given the opportunity to take anything with her that she wants as she goes into the presence of this king. And she defers to the chief eunuch and says, I will only take that which you recommend. That's huge. This young woman is wise beyond her years because she doesn't want to look like every other woman going in before the king. She wants to stand out. She doesn't want her dress to stand out. She doesn't want her makeup and her jewelry to stand out. She wants the inner character and dignity of who she is to be the bling that she wears. We have so much emphasis on bling these days. Bling this and bling that. Sparkle it up with sequins and diamonds and things that sparkle. Doesn't even matter that they're not real. Just let it catch the light and dazzle the people that are looking at you. Tell you what the gospel's not bling. The Holy Spirit of God is not bling. The Holy Spirit of God is about character and the essence of who you are and your integrity of, with your relationship before the Lord. Your bling is the fact that you come through the fire. And you don't smell like smoke. And those ropes that bound you are now gone. That's your bling, honey. Because any bling less than that is the bling of man and not the bling of God. And that's what we ought to be after. So this young woman goes before the king. And it doesn't tell us what she took with her. I like to think that the chief eunuch told her, you need nothing. Let's put a simple dress on you. Let's comb your hair. You need nothing because who you are is more than enough. And when Esther went before the king, he loved her more than all the others and made her queen. If King Ahasuerus represents modern day culture in our time together, the church has taken bling to the world. I mean, think about it. Watch some of the stuff on YouTube. Watch some of the stuff on television. We've got the loudest, most vibrant, most energetic this and that. And we've got all the kitschy sayings. And we've got this person and we've got that person. We've got all the bling. And the camera pans out. And there's not a heavy, overweight person in the audience. And the camera, the camera pans out. And there's no one over 40 that they get the picture of. I don't know what church that is, but it's not one I'm a part of because I am definitely overweight and over 40. The bling of God 
It's the kind of bling that doesn't catch the attention of man. It's the kind of bling that draws lost souls to salvation. It's the kind of bling that draws wayward, backsliding Christians back into a right relationship with God. It's the kind of bling that says to a generation, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death and destruction. Come in the ways of righteousness and let me tell you about Jesus. The bling of God is the kind of bling that changes, transforms, revolutionizes your life. And the hidden God of Esther speaks very clearly to us in this hour that we need to get rid of the bling of man and get on our faces until the Spirit of God comes upon us because he's really the only program we need. He's really the only thing that's going to turn this culture around. He's really the only thing that's going to save the lost, that's going to heal the bitter that's going to capture the imaginations and the hearts of humanity and bring them into a right relationship with God. That's what I want. I've seen and had enough of the bling of man to last me a lifetime. And I've just watched it on television. But it's futile and it's empty. When we go to a world, we don't go with a lot of anything except Jesus, because he's all we need. He always has been, and he always will be. Heavenly Father, tonight as we close, so much, Lord. You are so in the book of Esther, my heart and mind can scarcely take it in. You're hidden in the favor that you give to us, even when that favor brings us to places that we would not really want to be. Even when that favor cost us and is uncomfortable, you are in that favor because you're working in us something that will bring honor and glory to you. Oh, Father, you're in the process. Oh, we go through moments of bitterness. You're bringing healing to our lives. And you're bringing deliverance. And you're breaking the power of the past from off of our minds and our emotions. Oh, Lord Jesus, your Holy Spirit hovers over us to bring something of worth to your kingdom for out, from out of our lives. So tonight, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come. Let it come to our minds, changing the way that we think. Let it come to our emotions, changing the way that we perceive reality. Let it come to the way that we walk, so that we will walk in a way that will cause the world to take note of us, that we belong to you. Let your kingdom come. Let it keep on coming. Let your will be done. Let it keep on being done. For yours, Lord God, it really is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.